Happy New Year. Thank you. Hope Christmas was good for you. First talk of the new year. So we have uh, an overarching vision statement uh, in our church, knowing Jesus and making him known. Uh, And this morning, as we think particularly about inviting people to be part of us over this next year, particularly having in mind the Big Question series starting on the 30th of January and, of course, our Alpha course starting on the 27th of February. I want us to think very specifically about the second part of that statement, making Jesus known. And so with this in mind, we're going to look at Acts chapter 17. Uh, just to give you a little bit of background uh, before we get into that passage, the Apostle Paul and his companions are on a mission trip. They're going from city to city, introducing people to the good news of the Christian message. And as this happens, they keep meeting with opposition. Paul has to escape from one particular city, uh, and he finds himself in Athens after escaping from a city, uh, and he's waiting there for his companions to join him. And we pick up the story in verse 16 of Acts 17. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. This, they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. And so, here we see the Apostle Paul being a bit of a tourist in the first instance. He's doing Athens. Have you ever done a city? Think, right, I've never done Athens. I've never done Rome. I've never done this city or that city. And, and um, uh, last year, as a family, the Hotchkisses, we were luckily enough able to go to Rome and to sort of tick off some of the great sites there. Uh, and in a sense, Paul would have been a little bit like that. He would have been walking around Athens like a tourist, ticking off these spectacles one by one. The, um, the Acropolis, the Parthenon, the Agora, all of these wonderful sites, these great and famous sites that you can see in this famous ancient city. There are many shrines and temples and altars. In the Parthenon, there would have been a massive statue of the Greek goddess Athena. And when I say massive, it was massive, huge. Athena was holding a spear, and the tip of that spear could be seen from 40 miles away. The statue was made of gold and ivory. In other places, Paul would have seen images of Jupiter and Venus, Mercury, Neptune, Diana... All of these images were works of art made from gold, silver, ivory, marble, brass, stone. Just try and imagine this, the scene. Paul is there. He's walking through this city, through this glorious place, the glory of Athens. 
And other tourists would have been there, even at this point in time, even at this point in history, it would have already been a site for tourists because of all of the history and all of the fame that he'd enjoyed. And so people would have been walking through as tourists, amazed by what they could see, captivated by the beauty of Athens, impressed by the works of art, enjoying the fact that they were in the midst of this very famous city. But Paul saw something slightly different in Athens. What struck Paul about this place? Was it the history? Was it the beauty? Was it the artwork? It was none of those things. Paul saw what very few tourists noticed, even though it was all around them. Paul saw the idolatry. Paul wasn't blind to the beauty that was Athens, but beauty didn't impress Paul if it didn't honor God. And many people saw this glorious Athens, a wonder to behold. Paul saw a city drowning in idolatry. This is what he saw. But how did he feel about it? Well, we're told, the Bible tells us, he was greatly distressed. Isn't that interesting? In fact, most of my talk this morning is on that first verse in the passage we've read. Paul seeing the idolatry and being greatly distressed. It was as if Paul was jealous for the name of the Lord, just as God himself is a jealous God. It says in the Bible, Exodus 34, verse 14, Do not worship any other God, for the Lord is a jealous God. God is jealous of any human beings giving worship to anything or anyone apart from him. That may seem a strange thing for us to get our heads around, the fact that Paul was jealous for the name of God. It may seem even stranger that we're saying God himself is a jealous God. Now, is you know, we, we sort of, I think we sort of assume, don't we, that jealousy is a bad thing. But we've just talked about God being a jealous God. We've just looked at a scripture which describes God as a jealous God. So maybe we have to just think about what jealousy really means. Let's, how do we define jealousy? I want to suggest to you that we can define a jealousy as the resentment of rivals. So actually, jealousy can be a good thing or a bad thing. Whether it's good or bad depends upon whether the rival we're jealous of has any right to be there. Let me give you some examples. I might be jealous of my brother-in-law, Mark, because he is a better table tennis player than me. Now, in that particular instance, I would have no right to be jealous because I cannot claim the monopoly of talent uh, on table tennis. And unfortunately, my rival Mark, who is annoyingly better at table tennis than me, he has every right to be there. And therefore, in that particular 
trivial example, my jealousy would be ungodly. However, if you can imagine a different scenario, to give you a different example, imagine that Leonardo DiCaprio arrives in Shrewsbury, attempts to break up my marriage and steal my wife from me. Now, firstly, I'm sure someone like Leonardo DiCaprio would not do that. He's a nice guy, good guy. He's a rich guy and could sue me for slander, so he wouldn't do such a thing. But more significantly than that, of course, my lovely wife, Helen, wouldn't in any way be interested in Leonardo DiCaprio because she's got me and any lady... And as any lady in the room would quickly agree, (laughs) there's no competition. But again, I'm asking you to use your imagination. Imagine that if he comes along, Leonardo, and he tries to break up my marriage and steal my wife, in that case, I would suggest to you that my jealousy would be righteous because he has no right to be there. And so, it's more like that when we think about God's jealousy. This is what we're talking about. When it comes to worship, no rival deserves to be there. When it comes to commitment, there's only one person that we should look at and look to. God is jealous when we give our worship to any other thing. Why? Because he is the only one who deserves our worship. In Isaiah 42, verse 8, God says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. So when Paul's walking through this city of Athens, he is greatly distressed. Because he sees human beings who have been made in the image of God giving glory and worship to idols. And Paul was stirred to be jealous for the name of God. So, so Paul saw the idolatry and he felt the pangs of righteous jealousy. And what does he do on the back of that? Does he just tut? Sometimes we as Christians can have a jolly good tut, can't we? Can tut away. Oh, I don't know. What's the world coming to? Did he just sit down and have a good mope? Did he sigh and shake his head and say, well, it'll all end in tears. They'll, they'll find out. No. Paul goes to the people. Paul's reaction was not only a negative one. Alongside the negative dynamics of distress and dismay that Paul expresses as he sees the idolatry in Athens, alongside those negative dynamics, we see the positive dimension of witness. He went and he talked to all sorts of people. And that's the rest of the passage that we've looked at today. I don't know why the lights went out, but we'll get... He went and he talked to all sorts of people. Religious people. Sometimes religious people need a good talking to, don't they? 
He talked to the ordinary people, the people in the marketplace. He talked to the scholars, the philosophers. And that's the whole passage, actually. Paul saw the idolatry. He felt a godly jealousy. And then he went to the people and he spoke to them. So what's it saying to us? Well, many things, but I want to just pick up a couple. The result of this is that Paul goes and talks to people about God. He shares his faith with them. And so today we could spend some time looking at who he speaks to. We could spend some time looking at what he says, how he says it, and how that will help us become better witnesses. But actually, I don't want to do that. I want to ask a different question. And I want to go back a stage. I don't want to discuss what he says to the people. I want us to think today about what motivated Paul to go to speak to them in the first place. And so my two points of application out of this scripture today are these. Paul saw idolatry. What do we see? Paul felt jealousy. What do we feel? As we look at our world, as we live in our culture, what do you see and what do you feel? Let's look at the first one. Paul saw idolatry. What do we see? What is an idol? Well, an idol is a God substitute. Any person or thing that occupies the place which God should occupy is an idol. What are we seeing? In our culture, what are we seeing? I think what we have to do here is understand the process. I believe that we have to look at society, and I'm afraid we have to look at ourselves. So the first question is, can we identify things in society in general? And that's important because these things will do people harm. If people are investing their lives in things that have no permanent substance, they will ultimately experience an overwhelming sense of emptiness and unfulfillment. So let's think about idols in society. And we're all very aware, I'm sure, that idols do not simply, uh, are not simply limited to primitive societies. I want to put it to you that there are sophisticated idols alive and well in 21st century Britain and across the 21st century world. But what are they? Well, let's just look at one or two very briefly. First of all, materialism. Materialism is the attitude that leads us to pursue money and possessions. It tempts us to accept a new morality. It makes the drive for affluence a rival religion. Materialism has millions of worshippers across the Western world and beyond. God is the one to whom we should look to for security, for identity, for purpose, and for provision. This idol draws us away from God. Our security becomes rooted in what we earn, We see our identity in terms of our salary and what it buys for us. Our purpose becomes to earn more money and own more possessions. And we look at all of this as a means of provision. Materialism causes us to assess people by its standards. And Matthew 6, verse 24, Jesus says this, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one, and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. 
And this is the truth. But in our culture, we're given, I believe, a very different message. We're told that it's important to be rich, and if we can't be rich, it's important to look rich. What does the world think to the word successful? What does successful mean to most people in our world? I bet if you said the word successful, if most people hear about a successful person, they immediately think of it in terms of wealth. A successful person is a rich person. Is that true? Of course it's not true. The most successful person who ever lived had nowhere to rest his head. He never owned a house. He didn't have any land. He was born into a poor family, to a poor nation that was occupied by a world superpower. And so in the world's terms, he would have been regarded as unsuccessful. But Jesus doesn't measure success in that sort of way. He conquered death. That's success. He conquered the power of hell in the life of every believer. That's success. He takes people from the kingdom of darkness and brings them into the kingdom of light. That's success. And so for us, we need to know that we don't need to prove our worth by what we own. If we know God, we're justified, we're forgiven, we're adopted, we're chosen, we've been made righteous, we're free from condemnation, we've been rescued, we come boldly to God to find mercy and grace in times of need. We've been established and anointed and sealed by God himself. We've been given the Holy Spirit as a pledge guaranteeing our inheritance, an inheritance in heaven which will never perish or spoil or fade. It's an eternal inheritance. That's who we are. This is the measuring rod. It's not about sleek cars or fancy homes or designer clothes, the latest gadget, the best home cinema kit, Caribbean holidays. These things, by the way, are not intrinsically wrong, but these are not the things that dictate our worth and our identity. And these things become extremely dangerous if they begin to own us. And we find we're giving our lives for these things. We need to know who's boss in our lives. We need to recognize the master. Here's a second example. Just give you a couple of examples and then we'll move on. The pursuit of pleasure. The old-fashioned word is hedonism. Can be summed up by the phrase, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we may die. We hardly need to mention how dominant this particular idol is in our culture. And simply look at our television screens to identify this idol at work. People who live for the weekends or for the buzz of the nightclub or the buzz of the football stadium. People who plan their existence around their holidays the, uh, or the pubs or the clubs or the bars. They become their alternative places of worship. Again, as with possessions, there's nothing wrong with going for a drink, going to a football match. But if we're living for those things then we move into idolatry and these things begin to own us. If we give our lives for these things, then again, all too quickly, we will recognize the emptiness and the futility of living that particular way. Now, those are just two of many examples of how idolatry can creep in. And there are many others. In Athens, 
There were many altars, there were many shrines, lots of different gods, all standing together in one culture. Paul was shocked and upset and distressed by this. All of these different gods were regarded as equally valid, one from another. All regarded with equal importance. Paul saw this as idolatry. What do we see in our multi-faith culture? New ideas were popular in Athens. Great intellectual debates would take place and would be regarded as very significant and very important. Knowledge was exalted, probably above faith at times. These philosophers were key people in the process. And again, as we look at our culture, sometimes it seems that knowledge is being exalted above faith. What do we see in our culture? Idols. Let me just list one or two more. Fame can be an idol, or power, or sex, or food, or alcohol, or drugs. Parents, or husbands, or wives, or children. Friends, or work, or television. Even church, or religion, or Christian work can become an idol. And these things can be quite subtle. So there are some idols in our culture. With this in mind, I think it's important sometimes just to look at ourselves. Some questions worth asking ourselves. What is the object of our affections, our efforts, and our attention? Where does the majority of our time go? And what do we spend the greatest amount of our resources on? Augustine said this, Idolatry is worshipping anything that ought to be used or using anything that ought to be worshipped. Idolatry, can we see it? Can we see it? Paul could see it in his culture. Can we see it and identify it in our culture? And what do we do about it? As we identify Idolatry, we, if we're prepared to be honest, we realize we're not immune from that. And so the question for each of us to think about today is this. What competes with God in my life for my attention, my affection, my time, my commitment? And as we identify and as we deal with those things, and as we put God in his rightful place, I think we're in a stronger position and we're more equipped to help others see what's most important. So let's just look at the second question briefly. As we think about idolatry, we've considered what Paul saw and what we can see. Now here's the second question. In the light of this, how do we feel? Now I'm an evangelist. I truly believe that I'm called by God to bring the gospel to people and to equip others to be more effective in their witness. And as I've said before, in this scripture, we see Paul going to speak to the people of Athens about God. But I would like us to realize why Paul took the gospel to the Athenians. This is really important for us to get hold of. Why did he do it? Paul saw the idolatry. He felt the jealousy for God's name that caused him to go to the people and speak to them. So the order of events were this. He saw, he felt... He went, he spoke. And when it comes to witness, sometimes I believe that we do not speak 
as Paul spoke because we do not feel as he felt. And we do not feel as he felt because we do not see as he saw. Do you get that? So when it comes to witness, I'm going to say it again because it seems quite important. It might not be, but it seems important. So I'm going to say it again. When it comes to witness, I believe that sometimes we do not speak as Paul spoke because we do not feel as he felt. And we do not feel as he felt because we do not see as he saw. If we talk about reaching people with the gospel, then being rational human beings, we not only need to know how to do it, we need to know why we're doing it. Because when it comes to mission, our motivation is really, really important. Why are we motivated for mission? I put it to you that there are all sorts of reasons why we're motivated for mission. One of them is compassion, of course, finding something of or feeling something of God's heart for those who don't yet know God. That's really, really important. But I want to put it to you, this is not the most important reason for witnessing. The highest incentive I want to suggest to you for all mission is what we actually see in this passage. Jealousy for the glory of Jesus. The deep need to put Jesus in his rightful place. Our strongest incentive for evangelism, our strongest incentive for inviting people to our big question series or to our alpha course should be that there will be ultimately more worshippers for Jesus. More people rightly acknowledging Jesus as Lord and King. Whenever God's name is denied, we should feel wounded and jealous for his name. How do we feel? Imagine for a moment you have a best friend. I'm sure you've got many friends. Don't get me wrong. It may be harder for you to imagine I've got a best friend. But I guess you know what I'm talking about. There's some people that we are really close to, aren't there? We enjoy similar things to them. They understand who we are. They understand us. We can spend hours talking to them. It's not a burden. It's just a joy spending time with those people. They know us really well. They know when we're doing well. They know when we're struggling. They want to help us. They really care for us. We respect them. We care for them. We love them. Now imagine you go into a pub or a restaurant and you overhear a conversation where people are really having a go at that particular friend of yours. You know, they're really slamming them. It's like a character assassination. How would we feel? Upset? Angry? Annoyed that someone would say such things when it's blatantly obvious that they don't know our friend as well as we know them? We'd probably feel like jumping to their defense. We We might even do that. Now, you don't need to be Sherlock to work out where I'm going here. If we hear someone have a pop at a friend behind their back, we genuinely feel hurt for them because of the depth we have the depth of relationship we have with that person, with that friend. And so if we follow this through, our greatest motivation for witness will be jealousy for God's name. And that jealousy, that commitment to put him in his rightful place is actually rooted in the depth of relationship that we have with him. The closer we are to God, the deeper we will be touched by the idolatry we see in our culture. 
And so our prime motivation for evangelism actually is rooted in our relationship with Jesus. If we know him, if we know who he is, if we know what he's done, if day by day we're enjoying a loving relationship with him, then we will feel the pain when the world ignores him or defies him or chooses other things over him. And that pain then can be turned for good. People are doing what they're doing because they don't understand. They don't know him like we do. But we can tell them. We can put them right. We can say, no, no, he's not like that. You've got him all wrong. I know him. Let me tell you what he's really like. Let me tell you what he's really like. See, knowing Jesus causes us to want to make him known. When we know him, we want to make him known. And as we stay close to him, that's when we're fruitful. And of course, Jesus himself says that, doesn't he? He says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Abide in me and you will bear fruit. My friends, as we know Jesus, and as we contrast our knowledge and love and depth of relationship with him, as we look at that and we compare that with the idolatry in our culture, we will be so motivated to say to others, look, here is the answer. Here is the answer. Let's just spend a moment. I'd just like to conclude by praying for us. So let's just spend a moment praying, shall we? So as we pray right now, I just want us to have in our mind's eye a particular person, maybe that we know, we're not sure where they stand with God, we're not sure of where they they are in their faith, and we would love for them to know Jesus. We can picture that person in our mind's eye right now. Father, I pray for those people. There may be literally hundreds of people that we're picturing in this building even now. I want to pray that you would bring revelation to these people, that you would embolden us, give us the ability and the boldness, and stir our hearts to be powerful and effective witnesses for your glory. I pray for our Alpha course. I pray for our Big Question series. Not because we want a successful course, but because we want people to find you and ultimately become worshippers of you. Because it's all about your glory, Jesus. It's all about your name. It's all about your fame. So I pray for that. In Jesus' name. Amen.